This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 493 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Judge Craig Mitchell. Now, Judge Mitchell has an incredibly powerful story from his early life through to becoming a teacher in South Central Los Angeles, his journey into the legal profession, and then the formation of the Skid Row Running Club. After seeing the addiction and the homelessness in his area, he decided to be part of the solution and be proactive. So this was an incredible conversation. I also wanted to add that Judge Mitchell has recently recovered from brain surgery. So the fact that he sat down and did this podcast, I am so, so humbled by. And you will be moved by not only the insight, but just the the courage of this man, how he keeps forging forward. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly elevates this podcast, making it more and more visible, therefore easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 500 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help pay it forward and share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Judge Craig Mitchell. Enjoy.
Well, Judge Mitchell, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on. Not only, you know, we've been going back and forth for a while now, but you've obviously been through a gauntlet of uh, medical challenges as well. So um, I want to start just by saying thank you. You're quite welcome. Happy to be here. So for people listening, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? You're finding me uh, sitting in my chambers outside of my courtroom in downtown Los Angeles. Beautiful. That's obviously going to factor into the story. Um, but I like to start at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did, how many siblings, that kind of thing. Okay. Uh, I was born in the Los Angeles area in Pasadena. Uh, Back in 1956. In fact, I just turned 65 a couple of weeks ago. Happy birthday. Thank you. Um, I have one older sister and um, probably the most impactful event in my life was my mother passing when I was nine. Um, I only knew her when she was six. She had scleroderma. And so she was confined to a wheelchair for almost as long as I can remember. And she was given six months to live and she lived six years. And so my mother passed in 1966 and my father immediately remarried. And I have three brothers and sisters from my father's second wife, my stepmother. And you know, <laughs> not to be unduly unkind to my stepmother, but uh, I've always had a special affinity for uh, the story Cinderella. Um, <laughs> it was a less than ideal relationship. Um, in fact, when I finished high school, I was informed that I was no longer welcome at home and uh, I left. So... Um, I mean, the wonderful thing, though, is uh, I have remained always very close to my brothers and sisters and uh, to this day. Beautiful. Well, I mean, it's it's so interesting because of the way I, I always start at the beginning, especially in people that have come on that have been, either been through a dark, you know, a dark path themselves and come out the other side, whether it's people that are in the mental health world or, you know, your unique perspective the the impact of childhood trauma the impact of those formative years on the path that we lead so it's uh you know that that doesn't surprise me that you kind of seen less than ideal circumstances as a young man that maybe gave you some of the compassion as you became older yourself i think the the link is quite clear um i mean certainly much of what i have done with my life at least you know to some extent on a conscious level, certainly on an unconscious level, has tried to honor my mother's legacy. Um, it has also, you know, created in me a fierce self-reliance. Uh, when uh, I was in college, um, for a significant period of time, I lived in my car, and uh, I never considered myself homeless, but... <laughs> Now talking and becoming far more educated with respect to the homeless population, you know, I guess I was. Um, and, and so those experiences have been invaluable in terms of 
as you say, making me more sensitive, considerate of people in difficult circumstances. Absolutely. Well, obviously, we're going to talk about running. What about sports? When you were in school age, what were you playing? Uh, when I was in school, I wasn't playing anything. Um, I have worked pretty much a full-time job or multiple jobs since I was 12 years old. And there was no time for school sports. Now, what was the driving force behind that? Was it, again, subconsciously wanting to be self-reliant because of the family dynamic, or was there, was there a different motivation? So my stepmother uh, insisted that my sister and I work. We had to turn over our paychecks uncashed to her, and she would deduct uh, or apply that money towards what she considered to be our portion of the food bill, the phone bill, et cetera. So. <laughs> At 12 years old. Yes. Interesting. I've got a 13-year-old. He's, uh, he's playing Lego in the other room at the moment. I think he's under the same <laughs> regime that you're talking about. <laughs> uh, but uh, the, the good thing was, you know, being able to work, it got me out of the house. So it wasn't a bad trade-off. Sure, you can have my money, you know, but at least, you know, for 10 hours a day, uh, you know, I'm not answering to your beck and call. Now, obviously, the, the route to, to law school, you know, is very academic. Did having to work affect your schoolwork at all? Um, not terribly, no. When I went to UCLA, again, uh, there was no parental support. Um, and for some reason, I got it in my head that I didn't really want to become indebted in that process. So I worked 35 to 40 hours a week uh, throughout my undergraduate program. And what kind of work were you doing while studying? I was mopping floors in the dorms. Um, I was a security guard for a while. Um, I guess my longest job uh, I dispatched limousines to the movie industry for a couple of years. Okay, so, you know. Now, you, you obviously went on that, that path quite early. So, what, you know, when, when did you decide that the law field was the, the one you were going to pursue? And, and were there any, any kind of career aspirations prior to that? I had always grown up uh, in a home where around the dinner table, we discussed politics. Um, I can remember my mother and father in 1960 working on John Kennedy's campaign. Um, and so I had an early interest in politics. Uh, I was a avid reader. That subject matter uh, was what I read a lot about. And, you know, you read enough about politics and you fantasize about perhaps someday entering that arena, most people have law degrees. And so that's probably what planted the seed in my head. Interesting. So with that journey, um, it, first, kind of tell me what, what a, a high school graduate has to go through to enter that field. Well, you certainly have to finish your undergraduate degree. So you have four years of college. And then, I mean, most people who go to law school end up going to law school shortly after finishing their undergraduate program. That was not my path. Um, I was tired of living in my car. 
I wanted a job. I wanted, you know, a humble apartment at least. And so my last year at UCLA, I picked up a teaching credential. And, you know, thanks be to God, I ended up teaching in South Central Los Angeles. I thought I was going to do that just for a couple of years and then go off to law school. But uh, I enjoyed teaching so much that I stayed for 17 years. That's amazing. So again, so there you are, you know, obviously South Central is known to be, um, you know, not only of a certain demographic, but also historically, at least through the media, to be known as quite a, a violent place as well. So what was that experience like for you as a, as a you know, a young white man on the legal path? It, it was an education. I mean, uh, you know, but it also, I, I developed so many friendships, meaningful relationships with my students, um, with some of the people in, 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 on the faculty. Um, and, you know, there's one thing to teach kids that have a lot of advantages in life. It's another thing to teach a person who may be coming from a single parent family who might have parents who uh, never pursued higher education um, to be able to equip a young person with the skills necessary to succeed in college and really reach a professional level that is new to their family I mean, that was extremely meaningful to me. And it's what kept me coming back. Uh, every summer, I used to put 10 of my students in the back of a van and drive them across country to Washington, D.C. Uh, for a month, month and a half, just to expose them to the nation's capital, to encourage them to consider careers in public service. Um, but, you know, you spend that type of time with young people, uh, you know, I've never been so poor in my life, but it was probably some of the most meaningful, happy years that I have ever spent. I can imagine. Now, I had a, a, a guest, Passy Salberg, who is from Finland originally, and he talks around the world about their system. And one of the big things that, that they do is when there's a when there's an area, whether it's economic or, you know, whatever it is, where the the students aren't maybe given the best tools whether it's at home or you know uh, financially they actually put more funding and support into those schools to bring everyone up to the same point what are some of the things because you've got such a unique perspective that we do right in our schools here and and what are the ways some of the ways you think we could improve to give the the you know, just, I mean, the, the men and women in, in the areas that we've all seen, I've seen as a firefighter and a paramedic, um, where the opportunities may not be there, you know, in, in the neighborhood that they actually live in. Well, first off, you know, teaching can't be a job. It should be a vocation. Um, I mean, the first 10 years I spent at Sarah High School, which was a Catholic all-boys school, and our student population uh we had 500 students at the school, uh, 499 were African-American, one was Latino. <laughs> um, the demographic was, you know, what it was. Initially, the students didn't know what to do with me, you know, because I was very demanding. 
Um, I taught primarily American literature. They had to read 30 to 40 pages a night. They had to compose and typewrite an essay every week and hand in. Um, but what was wonderful about that is that after the rigors of our program, okay, and I was one teacher and I was probably at one end of the spectrum, but we had some, a couple of other very good teachers. And the universities began to see that the students that we sent to Stanford, to Berkeley, to Yale, they stayed and they graduated to the point where these schools would call me springtime and say, you know, Craig, we need to increase our African-American enrollment. Um, what students would you be willing to send us? We don't care what their grades are. We don't care what their SAT scores are. If you vouch for them, we will accept them. And those students went on to succeed. And, and so what I, you know, what so troubles me about so much of what constitutes quote unquote education is the lack of rigor. You know, let's have people do word searches. You know, let's show endless movies. I've been in the system where I knew that the teachers on either side of my classroom, there was no meaningful education going on. Okay, it was babysitting. I had a, one teacher that I knew well. He used to put his assignment on the board, you know, turn to page so-and-so in the book, read the chapter, answer the questions at the end of the chapter. He was so proud that he said he ran his classroom where he never had to open his mouth. Okay, and so my experience is that if you challenge students with a rigorous program, make it very clear that you deeply care about them because students are quite clever. They know if they're being provided an instructional program that is to their benefit. And if it is to their benefit, they're going to focus and do what you ask of them. See, that's such a, that's such an amazing perspective because it parallels the fire service. I've talked about this a lot. And you know, let's take law enforcement, for example. When we lower the bar, for quote unquote um, diversity, and I'll, I'll be more specific in a second on how we actually do that. Um, you don't get as as good a candidate because it's not a challenge for for the individual. Um, conversely, what I found is if you provide mentorship in the communities that are underserved, you find the best candidates that become great police officers, firefighters, whatever it is. But you have to, again, like you said, set a bar high and get them to, to reach it. And it's beautiful to, you know, to hear what you said as well, because, you know, it's, it, we have the same thing. There was a guy in my last fire department who prided himself in basically just putting his gear on the fire engine every shift that was it that was his you know and he was almost revered in this department so i i couldn't agree more like i think that we completely misunderstand the idea of chasing a dream and, and you know and setting that bar high and if you know finding the best people if if you know, harvard or yale came to Corsham in england where i grew up and they were looking for the best lawyers I wouldn't be on that list. You know, I was obviously meant to do something different. So it's not about scooping up a bunch of white English people because they're underserved and throwing them all into a system or a fire service or whatever. It's about 
penetrating that community, you know, inspiring that community in whatever field you're looking for, finding the best people. And that's exactly what you did with uh, with the school kids. Absolutely. No, I, I agree. And, you know, Sarah High School, where I spent 10 years, I mean, we spent a fraction on each student relative to what the public schools were spending. But the end product was far superior. And um, anyways, that's. No, that's amazing. That's, I mean, I'm so glad that we got into that conversation. And, and, and the, the thing that I was going to add, you know, when I talk about teaching being not a job, but a vocation, I would get to school probably 6.30 in the morning. On a good day, I would leave at 10.30 at night. You know, I, I did student council, um, yearbook, um, the retreat program. Uh, on the weekends, we would take 50 students uh, for three days on retreats. Uh, we did this over and over again every month. And when, when students see the level of commitment that you're bringing to the table, it is going to make a profound difference in terms of how they respond to the educational program. If you're just the teacher who shows up, you know, 10 minutes before the tardy bell, you run out to the faculty parking lot as soon as the last bell rings, forget it. Yeah, absolutely. And again, within the fire service, a lot of our, you know, motivated men and women and, and law enforcement, I'm sure as well, you know, on our, it's almost sad in a way because we have to do it on days off, you know, they'll take vacation days and go and do advanced fire classes, you know, you know, rope rescue and, you know, pediatric trauma classes and all these things to make themselves better. And I think that's it. You, when you walk the walk, the, the, whether it's a probationary firefighter or whether it's, you know, uh, a student at a school, I think you don't even have to say any words. It's just purely by watching you do the work. It, it, by osmosis then inspires them. And that's one of the, as you say, you, you know, with the running club to sort of fast forward to what I'm doing now, you know, words don't mean a heck of a lot. Me getting up at 2.30 in the morning, three days a week to be down on Skid Row, um, <laughs> I don't have to say anything, okay? They know my level of commitment. Well, you mentioned the running club, so you have uh, an interesting story of how you did start running. So I'd love to hear that if that was okay. Sure. I started running just a little bit before I turned 40. Uh, at that point, I was a relatively newly minted prosecutor, uh, not long out of law school. And I had a supervisor who asked if I would participate in the Baker to Vegas law enforcement run. And that's from Baker, California to Las Vegas. It's a 20 person team you all run given legs. And I had never run before in my life. I wasn't really particularly fond of running. Um, but I also understood that it wouldn't help my career if I said no to the man. So I said, sure, I'll give it a try. And bought myself a pair of running shoes at Payless Shoe Store and immediately got shin splints because the shoes were so crummy. Um, <laughs> but... You know, I, I met some people uh, in that experience that I continued to run with at work. And, you know, it, it took off from there. 
Now, with with your journey into the legal profession, um, what was your initial impression? Um, because you know, as as we move on, you end up doing something very proactive with the running club. What was your impression of of maybe seeing the same faces, or you know, any sort of sense of futility of some of the the laws that were out there? I mean, I mean, I'm not trying to load the question, but what were some of the first impressions that you got? I mean, I chose to be a prosecutor because, you know, as a high school teacher, many of my students were the victim of violent crime. I went to too many funerals of my students who were caught in gang crossfire. And I saw the pain uh, that their families experienced, that the larger community experienced. And so I wanted to go to bat for the victims of crime. I mean, that's what brought me to the prosecutor's office. Um, Interestingly enough, the prosecutor's office had a hiring freeze when I got out of law school. So I initially did defense work. And so I have a background that encompasses seeing both sides of the equation. And many of the people that I represented when I was doing defense work um, you know, there are certain people who they were good for the crimes that they were charged with. And my job as a defense attorney was not necessarily to try and get a not guilty verdict because sometimes the evidence is overwhelming. But my job was to, you know, you have somebody who's 18, 22 years of age. How can we impose a sanction on this person that is fair? that allows them to pay a certain price, but then get on with their life. Um, on the other hand, and there are, you know, people who are, you know, real, pose a real danger to the community. And, and, and that's what ultimately propelled me into the prosecutor's office. Right. Well, with, I mean, that's something I didn't even touch on with you being in South Central with yeah, the violence. I know the Crips and the Bloods obviously was a was a notorious conflict. When you look at one it, of the schools, one of the schools I taught at was largely a rolling sixties. That was just one of the major Crip gangs in Los Angeles. Extremely violent. I'd listen to my students come in on Monday morning and talk about who they shot that weekend. Now, when you reverse engineer that. What do you see as root causes? Because, I mean, you know, whether it's Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland, whether it's, you know, Palestine and Israel, whether it's Crips and Bloods, to me, there's always kind of like a, a starting point that, you know, that if we go far enough back, that's the root cause that we need to address. You know, so many times you, you have to look at the homes that they came out of where perhaps their parents, grandparents, uncles, et cetera, have had extremely limited opportunities. And so the role models of sitting down and opening a school book and writing essays and doing what you need to do to succeed on a traditional path is something they've never experienced. Um, the people in their neighborhoods who get respect are the ones who may be involved in criminal activity um, you have way too many young people growing up in very fractured homes with the crack epidemic in Los Angeles in the 1970s and 80s. You had what were previously functioning families 
that were just totally destroyed. And so you have parents who are not meeting their most basic responsibilities to their children. And you have young people who are adrift. And so they're going to, I mean, I, one individual that comes to mind, his, his mother was a prostitute, his brother was in prison. Uh, he joined a gang. Surprise, surprise. Okay. It was the only organization in his community that, you know, gave him a sense of belonging, a, you know, some protection. Having said that, um, students at Sarah High School uh, who academically put their nose to the grindstone, um, they grew up in neighborhoods that were full of gangs. But there's an inter interesting code, you know, when lawyers would come to me, you know, and say, well, you know, my client did this. He had no choice. He had to join a gang. Um, I don't buy that. My experience was some very violent gangs in Los Angeles. They knew the students who wanted to take a different path. Uh, they were the brainiacs. Um, and they were, interestingly enough, proud of these individuals. Don't mess with so-and-so. He's going places. Okay. And so you could live in a neighborhood that was gang infested, so to speak. But if you were academically inclined, you, you normally were allowed to, to go fairly unscathed. See, that's so interesting because there's such a, a yearn, yearning to be in a tribe. And, you know, obviously the fire service, you know, we have a tribe in our fire station. When we transition out, a lot of our men and women struggle because they've lost that tribe again. But, you know, that goes back to that mentorship. You know, if your tribe, your obvious tribe is the Crips, the Bloods, the MS-13 members, whoever it is, right. then you're going to, you know, there's, there's that kind of almost like... um primeval draw towards that but if there is a club an academic you know a, a, a football team then that could be a positive mentorship how many mo single mothers did i talk to in the course of my career as a teacher you know who said i i took my kids to pop warner i took them to the y i took them to the boys and girls club i made sure they were occupied 24 7 and that's why they are successful in school right now. Um, but if you, if you have absentee parenting figures, okay, the outcome is far more perilous. Absolutely. Now, I'm going to, I want your perspective on something, and I, I don't want to again load it, but I'll give you kind of my background of, of my perspective. Being a firefighter, paramedic, and then prior to that, being a lifeguard. So for, you know, most of my life, um, you know, we get to see, really behind the curtain, behind the facade. We get to see what works, what doesn't work, the the violence, you know, all this kind of thing. And um, a few years ago, after I started this podcast, my mom, my brother had moved to Portugal from England. And my mom said, hey, do you know that they decriminalized addiction here? And I was like, no, I had no idea. And um, so I ended up going on one of my visits back to see them. I went to Lisbon and sat down with the, the man, Zhao Gulao, who spearheaded that decriminalization in that country. And they took 
addicts and rather than send them through the legal system they send them through the medical system they, they got psychological counseling addiction counseling job creation all these great proactive measures and then through that lens i started looking at all the things that i, I see as a, as a firefighter the gang violence all the 16 year olds i've pulled yellow sheets over and you know the overdoses and all these things and it made me realize that um that particular prohibition has created so much death and destruction and violence and problems. And you compare, for example, the streets of South Central to the streets of Oslo, you know, they're all humans. What are we doing differently? So without loading the question, myself, I am a huge fan of the removal of prohibition, not, not of selling, not of, not of smuggling, but of, of addiction. Um, what is your stance on that, having seen what you've seen the last few decades? Well, I have a question in response to what you observed in Portugal and elsewhere. Um, how do those countries get people to get into programs that address their mental health and addiction circumstances? So it was very interesting because, I mean, that's a, that's a great question. I wanted the same. So many people who are addicts um, don't ask for help because of the fear of being arrested. Um, so what they found is once they did that, so say if you were detained with, you know, possession, you weren't even arrested. You went and literally had an interview and you were educated on the resources. You didn't even have to go. They planted that seed into your head. They took, you know, the ad, I mean, obviously there's some addicts that will never come off. They put them in safe injection sites. Um, you know, they had, you know, the, the, the needle services and all that. But if you were, for example, a fentanyl addict, then you went to a clinic. You took your fentanyl, which was the actual dose, so you're not going to OD, and then you went about your day. But a majority of people were just suppressing trauma. So once they actually were on that road and they were able to, to really address why they were an addict in the first place, they saw an incredible success. And then a lot of those funds that they were using to fight the war on drugs now went into law enforcement, that the courts were cleared because of all the, you know, the, the, almost elimination of drug related cases. So, you know, in that lens, I mean, it was, it was amazing to hear, but yeah, it was basically removing the stigma so that these men and women could actually ask for help. The United States is moving in that direction. Okay. Uh, in Los Angeles and California specifically, um, possession is a misdemeanor. Similarly, you're not going to, you, you may be arrested, they'll write you up and you're immediately released. Um, if you are brought to court, um, there is no meaningful jail time. And what, and what I have seen, which is difficult to deal with is with fentanyl, particularly with methamphetamine, because that's the drug of choice in Los Angeles now. You offer a person who is a regular meth user um, drug treatment, okay? Residential, outpatient, whatever it is, okay? Or you say, you know, we're going to have you do 90 days in jail. Those are your choices. They know that 90 days in jail means that they'll get out tonight. Okay, because of the overcrowding, et cetera, lack of funds, whatever. 90 days mean you're immediately released. 
And so you, the problem that we're confronting is that no one, I shouldn't say no one, the majority of people who are addicted to methamphetamine are more committed to maintaining their access to that drug than getting into drug treatment. And that's incredibly problematic. Once, you know, once somebody says, I want something more out of my life, then they'll end up at one of the missions or one of the treatment programs. Okay, they'll end up in the running club. But before they get to that point, and there are many who have been in the running program who, you know, they relapse and relapse and relapse because the lure of methamphetamine and the high that it gives them, as you say, to cover up trauma in their own life is so powerful that they cannot separate themselves from it. And if someone could tell me how you could get a person in that circumstance to choose recovery over a continuing addiction, uh, I am all ears. Yeah, you see, and it's an in, it's an interesting concept. And again, I'm not completely well versed, but what I've seen is firstly you take you address the large part that you can change. Of course, you've got you know whether it's certain drugs, whether it's certain groups where they're staying, but then you bring them into a clinical setting. So I don't know if you're able to to wean them or while they're in a clinical setting, kind of get them the counseling at the same time. I'm not sure. You know, I'm not well versed enough on that particular drug just to. To find out what they would do, but I mean, I, I need to basically ask Zhao again, like, what what do they do, and get you a, a concrete question. But okay. but um, yeah, I mean, but I think it's just it, it, we the, used to we used to be able to we had what was called DEJ um, deferred entry of judgment, where it was sort of a carrot. You're going to get arrested for drug possession, but it'll be completely wiped off of your record if you'll commit to going to outpatient treatment a couple times a week, okay? That program just has died because there's no, there's no incentive um, for the drug user to participate in that program. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, like I said, it's not, it's not a black and white one and done answer, but I think, I, I, I think the philosophy is incredible. But the question is, you know, how, again, I mean, you've got such an acute lens too. I mean, you know, LA is a highly density, excuse me, highly dense, densely populated, um, city, you know, with, you know, a higher level of violence and maybe addiction as well. So, you know, maybe, and then maybe the methamphetamine and crack, I mean, it's just flooded into our communities. There's so much money to be made. Okay. Um, and since the sanctions, uh, have been, largely wiped out, law enforcement has essentially removed themselves from trying to, in my opinion, stop the flow of those drugs into our communities. Yeah. Well, I know one thing as well that I did see. So when that you know was put in place in Portugal, I don't know if maybe meth wasn't one of the ones that was flooding in that country, um, but you cut the head off the snake supply and demand so now you're taking right. away the power from the uh the pushers and the smuggler you've got more police resources to focus on the pusher and the smuggler and uh you know i think that was another huge element um you know that they saw huge success with was once you take away the customer then 
there's no money for the for the underworld for that particular route. And when I say no, I mean it's 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 minimized. But you know, to sort of tie this into our discussion uh, about what I learned when I was a teacher, um, when you and you you hit the nail on the head, when you have people who are coming out of unsupportive, dysfunctional families who have not been adequately reared or loved, okay, you are just setting that person up for uh, addiction. Yeah, absolutely. And that's it. That's just it. So turning it back into the, the running club path now, um, I would love to hear about uh, Roderick Brown. And kind of how that was the the genesis of you know what not what you've not only done now but uh, you know a, an incredible powerful documentary um, that that shows what you guys are doing. Well, I mean, there's great irony when I talk about Roderick Brown. Roderick Brown, as you know from the documentary, was a individual that I sent to state prison, um, not for a long period of time, a couple years. Um, and when he was released from custody, he was paroled to the Midnight Mission. And for some reason, he decided he liked the way I treated him when he was in my courtroom. He came back to my courtroom and invited me to come down to Skid Row uh, to the Midnight Mission and meet the people who were involved in his recovery. And I did that. And when I went down to the mission. They asked me, is there something I could do to contribute to the program? And my three children were either in college or grad school, so I didn't have a lot of extra money just to write a check, but I had some time on my hands. And I said, well, you know, maybe I could start a running program. The interesting thing about Roderick Brown is Roderick Brown, and that was 10 years ago, Roderick Brown to this day remains a captive to his addiction. Roderick Brown never ran a single mile with us. Now, his lasting legacy is that he got me down to Skid Row, and he is what he is the person responsible for the ultimate genesis of the Skid Row Running Club. Um, but he has never been the beneficiary of that program. Now, what do you think, just staying on him for a moment, what do you think his own barrier is? Why was he not able to when so many people were? Um, Roderick Brown has a real difficult time making prudent decisions. And whether you can ultimately tie that to a life from its almost inception of just being completely chaotic, um, you know, never being able to step outside of himself and in an objective sense assess what he has been doing wrong. Um, Roderick Brown is a very complex human being, so full of contradictions and conflicts. Um, he's, he's never been able to escape it. And have you heard his early life? I mean, are there elements when oh, you yes, look at that? Yes, yes. I mean, Roderick would come up and spend time in my courtroom, come back into chambers. I mean, we spent a lot of time together. Yeah, no, I, I'm privy to his past. I'm also privy to the fact that, you know, he is 
seemingly incapable of any long-term sobriety. Yeah, well, like you said, it's a tri- tri- tragic irony, but I think that's also a kind of pertinent point is it seems to me that when there's an initiative, the naysayers will look at what doesn't work. And often that might be a very, very small part of the puzzle. And the assumption that we can fix everyone with prohibition of drugs, with, you know, whatever it is. Which, 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 which we, we can't. No, exactly. So, but, ha- you know, if we can affect a large amount of people, then absolutely right. it's worth it. So right. talk to me about, so he, he inspired you to, to take that first step. So tell to me about the growth of the running club and, and what kind of men and women, you know, the, the background of those men and women that were coming and running with you. Oh. Um, the people who form the bulk of the members of the running club are people who are in recovery, okay, who at some point in time uh, hit rock bottom and it ended up on Skid Row at, at one of the major missions, uh, Midnight Mission, Union Rescue, LA Mission, Fred Jordan Mission, and got involved in, you know, ultimately a 12-step program, uh, that whole path toward recovery and sobriety. And uh, those who were inclined uh, got involved in the running program, knowing that, you know, that could add some really distinct benefits in their life. Um, We run three days a week, Monday, Thursdays, and Saturdays. We travel around the world once a year to run an international marathon. Um, You get to participate in the LA Marathon. We do races, triathlons. We just did a bike ride from Los Angeles to, or from San Francisco to Los Angeles. I mean, if you want something to really augment your recovery program, um, to strengthen it, okay? Skid Row Running Club offers you that opportunity. Um, And, you know, I'm sure you appreciate the fact that people in recovery, when they see other individuals in recovery succeeding and supporting one another and caring for one another, that increases the likelihood of their success. And what also increases the likelihood of their success, you know, it's the same thing we were talking about, you know, in terms of how do you avoid gang life if you're a young person in South Central? If you're playing football, if you're at the boys club dribbling a basketball down the court, okay, if you're involved in the Boy Scouts, okay, your time is occupied. And the Skid Row Running Club, I mean, we are doing things in the Skid Row Running Club. Yes, we have our major runs Mondays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. But one of the things that regretted, I caused me some regret about scheduling this interview with you this morning is it meant that I couldn't be out at Santa Monica Beach swimming in the ocean with 10 to 15 members of the Skid Row Running Club because that's what we do every Friday. On Sunday, we're doing the same thing. We have a a woman who is with the Los Angeles Tri Club and they're teaching our members the correct form to swim. And so you've got... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and what are you doing in the evenings if you're in recovery? You're going to meetings. When I drive down to the beach with one of our members, he's got a meeting playing on his phone. We're not talking to each other. He's 
he's in, involved in a 12-step meeting. So, I mean, it's, you know, if you can occupy your time with constructive, positive experiences surrounded by good people, the likelihood of your long-term sobriety is increased immeasurably. Yeah. Well, the other thing that just rings out to me is that they're a part of a positive tribe again. I mean, it must be an incredibly lonely life being a homeless addict on Skid Row. So when they they become part of the running club, I mean, it's giving them a reason, you know, something to shoot for every day, a reason to actually... You know, not only be part of that team, but I mean, you're traveling around the world, you're inspiring other people, you're, you become a beacon of hope for other people, as you mentioned. No. You know, the, <laughs> the methodology, you know, is not terribly complex. One of the things I hate the most is when, when, you know, we're talking about things like this and someone says, oh, yeah, but it's complicated, which is the best sentence to discount any work that is needed to actually affect change. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I find that most of the, as I said, root causes to address them fundamentally are very simple. It just takes courage and, you know, applying funds in the right direction rather than, you know, reactively wasting them. Larry Adamson, who was the president of the Midnight Mission when I went down there 10 years ago, he said, you know, Craig, we're in the self-esteem business. That's what recovery is about rebuilding a person's self-esteem. And that is not a complex proposition. You know, I, I have no great talents or, or, or gifts in this area, apart from the fact that I am willing to spend the time. Okay, and, you know, don't, don't, don't utter the words, oh, I love you, I care, forget all that crap, okay? Um, be with the other person, offer the, drive the person to wherever the event is occurring. Okay. Those are the things that matter. Beautiful. Well, you mentioned Roderick, um, you know, again, I, I, I hope that the, the seed is still sown and one day, you know, he'll finally be able to, to find the strength. You know, I, I, like I said, I'm sending hope. Um, but talk to me about some of the, the success stories, some of the men and women that really have found their way out of that darkness. Uh, the individuals in the movie, uh, Rebecca, okay, who was a heroin addict for years, uh, involved in a lot to support that habit. Uh, I just got an email yesterday afternoon. She is celebrating her 10th year of sobriety. She is a surgical tech. She is married. She's a good mother. Uh, her and her husband just bought a home up in Seattle. Um, tremendous success story. Uh, ben Shirley, who was the musician in the movie, um, he and his wife um, just bought a home in Ohio. He continues to compose for the movie industry, and that's how he sustains himself. Um, he also is 10 years sober. People who are currently newer members of the club. Um, I won't mention names, but we have one of our individuals who um, is now working for the Department of Mental Health as a outreach worker in the community. Um, he was just offered a job by a medical office in downtown to do outreach to the homeless population that that medical office is serving, um, double his present salary. 
Okay. He's been clean and sober for four years. Um, he is a sponsor to some of our new runners. Um, another individual who joined us about three years ago, he's now a counselor at a home for troubled uh, young people. He can definitely identify. He was raised uh, in a house of prostitution. Um, he came home from junior high school one day. The house was on fire. His mother died. Uh, the authorities tried to pick him up and put him in foster care. This particular individual has been on his own since about 14 years of age. He ran from the Department of Children and Family Services. Okay, what is he doing now? He's in a stable relationship. Um, he it has been sober for probably four years as well, full-time employed, has his own apartment. I mean, I could go on. I could just pick this person, this person, this person, and, you know, there's incredible success. Beautiful. Well, no, that proves my point. I mean, you have this giant list, and obviously, you know, there are some I didn't work for, but that's... Like you said, that's what it, it might be a different thing that changes them. It might never change them. And sadly, that would be someone that we lose. But look at all the names. Look at all the, the stories. I mean, I've got almost 500 uh, people on this podcast now, 500 episodes. And some of the incredible stories. Just, just most recently, I interviewed Colin Broderick, who's an incredibly um, respected author and filmmaker now. And he was deep in, you know, alcoholism. He was homeless and just, you know, I think it was like 40 years old, managed to pull himself out and started writing. And again, the right people, the right environment created that perfect, you know, positive storm to get him out. But with that, without that right environment, whether it's people like yourself creating opportunities for tribalism and community and, and, and healing, um, you know, then we're not going to fix the problem. So that's what's so powerful to me. It is, and the larger community, I, I want everybody to understand, you know, Craig Mitchell is one piece of the puzzle. Um, we have gotten the exposure to the larger community where we have now a higher up in UPS. We have one of our board members is high up in LA tourism. We have people who have the resources to say, okay, you know, I've run with you for the last eight weeks. You really seem to have something going for you. I like your personality. I like your dedication. You get along well with other people. We have a positioning opening up in about a month. I'd like you to apply for it. And I can point to the number of people in our running program who have secured jobs by those type of connections. That's incredible. Now, how to with with a checkered past and maybe you know a kind of uh, um, some legal uh, elements hanging over someone's head as far as um, uh, criminal record. How do some of these men and women overcome that when it, when it comes to gaining employment? Let, let me just use the example of one of the people featured in the documentary, Rafael Cabrera. You know, Rafael Cabrera was convicted of first degree murder. Rafael Cabrera is now working for the Department of Water and Power, making over $50 an hour. Okay, so when people come into my court and say, oh, Judge Mitchell, I can't get a job. I've got a felony on my record. I ain't buying it. 
Okay. Um, we have organizations, be it the Anti-Recidivism Coalition, be it Chrysalis in downtown Los Angeles. There's a whole host of organizations that know the employers that are willing to risk hiring someone with a criminal record. You know, and if you can end up making $50 an hour with the Department of Water and Power and having been convicted of first-degree murder, you know, if you're resourceful, it's not going to be an impediment. Yeah. Well, that's so good to hear again. I mean, I've had people on here that went into the military and had to get, you know, legal help to to get their records expunged or, you know, whatever whatever the solution was. Um, and then, like I said, in Portugal, there's actually incentives to employers to hire recovering addicts, you know? So again, proactive versus reactive. So that's beautiful to hear. All right. Now, you know, now are you going to get a job as a police officer? No. Okay. So don't spin your wheel. Okay. <laughs> But there are a lot of opportunities out there. Absolutely. Well, one more area before we shift to some closing questions so I can let you go. I'm just curious because you have, you know, such an extreme lens with, you know, you running literally on Skid Row. Um, what have you seen? Not, not the obvious, um, you know, pandemic itself, the, the virus, the illnesses and everything, but more the unseen, um, ripple effect of this last 18 months on addiction, on homelessness, on some of the things that you get to see with your own eyes on the streets? I mean, interestingly enough, you know, and we have for all but about two and a half to three months, we have continued running on Skid Row three times a week. At the very beginning, we followed the public health advisories and suspended it for a brief period of time. Um, but the number of tents, the drug dealers on bicycles, um, the overdoses, it, it really hasn't been impacted tremendously by the pandemic, uh, from my point of view. Um, they, public health officials were terribly concerned that COVID would decimate the homeless population in Los Angeles. Given the proximity that they live to one another, their lack of access to good health care, their compromised immune system because of long-term drug abuse, it hasn't happened. There's a slightly higher COVID infection rate uh, amongst the homeless population, but only marginal. See, again, this is why I love these conversations. You get to hear it from people and it's not trying to push a pro or anti or any sort of agenda it's just you know i i love it when i hear from the doctors and the nurses and one of my doctor friends that's, that's been on a couple of times right now he's got another influx just outside austin texas where they are there his particular er is full of a lot of covid cases again but you know overall you know where, what is the impact you know, in the rural setting versus la and, and to hear that that perspective of, yeah, I mean, you would think a very, very fragile population that that's very interesting. And again, I think, I hope that serves as, as optimism for people because we've been told a lot of doom and gloom and it's got a lot of people very scared, which I think is terrible for the immune system, but that's something to be celebrated. If it's not as bad as, you know, we were hoping and, and the, the fragile population living on the streets aren't as affected, then that should be on the news too, I think. So thank you for, for sharing that perspective. You know, and, and, you know, for the person living in the tent and uh, addicted to methamphetamine, you know, COVID is not the 
the front and center preoccupation than it would be for like you and I. No, and that's my point is, is what breaks my heart is what a great opportunity for us to have had a discussion on obesity, on addiction, on all these things when health is supposed to be front and center. But that's what I'm seeing is that it's it that one thing has all the discussion and, um, you know, such a wasted opportunity to address some underlying things because when COVID's come and gone, addiction and obesity are still going to be there and we're still going to be losing people. Yes. Well, again, I thank you for your, your perspective on that. So I want to shift some closing questions so I can let you get on with your day. And I love the fact that you're in your running stuff because I, I read <laughs> on one of the, one of the interviews they did on you that you have your, uh, you know, your, your gown over your I running gear. Over the- my running gear. That's right. <laughs> so now I can see that firsthand. Um, the first question I love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend to people? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Apart from running, probably my second most favorite uh, pastime is to read. I read about a book a week. And there isn't a favorite book. Um, One book recently, though, that uh, I think really helped me understand the community that I am working in much better is Coates's. the Color of Water, incredible novel, but I can't identify a narrative about slavery, this country, that made me appreciate the psychological savagery of slavery. You know, roots and book after book after book. Um, you know, you get, you get the visuals, the slave markets, the the lynchings, the the whippings. Okay, but this book conveys the incredible psychological toll uh, of that institution in in a way that was new and insightful to me. Brilliant. I'm going to have to get that. Thank you so much. I never had that recommended before. It's it's very interesting as well when you talk of of slavery when again we reverse engineer and it'll be interesting to get your perspective with you you know having read several books on this but um i went to the charleston museum with my family the the slavery museum excuse me in charleston um again i think that's a, a must visit for anyone that lives in this country but it was interesting because you know my ancestors some of the british slave traders were the ones that were actually going there and bringing the slaves over and then we were basically trading for for goods in America so that we came back. Well, they, I'll say we, they came back with their hands clean. But it kind of made me realize that, you know, at that time when slavery was was right, um, Britain was actually going through, you know, a huge, uh, era, um, excuse me, a huge time of poverty. So when we look at slavery, we think of like, you know, all Americans are all British. And actually, you know, most of them, you know, John the blacksmith in, in rural Somerset had no idea that slave trading, slave trading was going on. So what, again, when, when you reverse engineer to me, so many times these issues come from greed and power from, from the few. With all the books that you've read on that, um, you know, what was that element? Like who, how many people were truly benefiting from slavery here in the U.S.? It's hard to identify, you know, those who did not benefit. Um, I mean, our our whole economy benefited from having a enslaved workforce that you didn't pay. The 
Northern mills in Massachusetts, New York and Connecticut, et cetera, were weaving cloth out of the cotton that was being grown in the South. You know, why is the United States the economic powerhouse that it is today? You, you got to go back to slavery. And I mean, yes, there were a tremendous number of individuals who were not slaves, uh, largely the white population who were struggling, you know, to open up the West, farmers, um, you know, just scraping to get by. Um, but the dollars <laughs> that really contributed to the Gilded Age um, industrialization in this country uh, wouldn't have happened without slavery. Yeah. Yeah, this is so interesting. I mean, whether it was knowingly or unknowingly, it still had that ripple effect. It did. It did. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, thank you for that perspective. I'm definitely going to get the, the book. Um, well, before we get to uh, a documentary or film that you recommend, let's talk about your film for a moment. So Skid Row uh, Marathon is the name of the documentary. So where can people find that? Uh, it is on Amazon. Okay. And my understanding is it uh, is completely free of charge. Brilliant. Yeah, it's probably, I think it was on Prime when I watched it. Okay, next question. Is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? I would recommend several people in, in my running program who I think could offer a largely ignored perspective. Well, I, I would love to have you know any one of them. So please feel free to to pass on the information. Ben Ben Shirley is very articulate. Um, Mario Ocampo speaks from the heart and um, has an incredible life story and journey to share. Um, addiction, incarceration, um, and rebirth. Beautiful. Well, that's that's the thing. I mean, this this is just to basically bring whether it's you know mental health and and physical health solutions from professionals, whether it's just in incredible life stories. I mean, this is this is it. This is smashing through that facade that we sadly see adorn our screens a lot and get the real human stories. So I would love to get both of them. Thank you. And both of them would be inclined to to do a podcast with you. Beautiful. Ben would be a little bit more reluctant, you, you know, tell him to talk to me, but yeah. Okay, fantastic. Okay. Well, thank you. All right, well, then the, the last question before we make sure people know how to you know, find the running club, find you, what do you do to decompress? I take a run. I thought you were going to say that. <laughs> okay, I mean, oftentimes when I'm in court, you know, there'll be some big legal issue or I have to decide, usually it has to do with sentencing. What am I going to do with somebody? He's been found guilty. He's pled guilty. Okay. Do I give him a second chance? Do I send him to prison? And I said, you know, I can make a, I can make a call right now, counsel, if you want me to. But if you'll put it over for about a week, I'll take a good long run and spend some really quality time thinking about what I think is best for your client. And invariably, the lawyer will say, Judge Mitchell, go take your run. Beautiful. Well, with that, just as a tangent, you know, you talked about your childhood and obviously there was some trauma there. Did you find the element of catharsis yourself once you started running and really kind of got, so again, that runner's high and, and really, you know, 
fi- fall in love with running? <laughs> I don't. I, I didn't really finally come to terms with my childhood trauma, if you will, during running. No, I mean, you know, life has enough trauma on a day-to-day basis. You know, I, I've raised two sons and a daughter. I've been married for over 30 years. You know, I've got plenty on my plate dealing with issues that are front and center, you know, 2021 without dredging up my childhood past. Um, you know, why is it my kid underachieving in school? You know, why is my daughter involved in a relationship that I don't think is positive? Why is my wife on my case about this subject when it really isn't something that, that I can resolve for her? I mean, those are the things that get me out on the street and, you know, I, I'm not running with music, you know, I'm just reflecting. And the great thing is, you know, by the time I finally run back up the driveway and, and, and go into the house, you know, things are far more sorted out in my life. <laughs> Beautiful. No, I mean, it makes perfect sense. And I've actually, you know, done that myself where it's actually been anger. You know, I've been frustrated and angry. And it's hard to be angry after you've run for a certain amount of time, especially, you know, that particular case. And what was the source of that anger just doesn't quite seem quite as important at the end of the long run. Absolutely. You know, your perspective. Okay, yes, this happened that made me angry at this brief point in time. Okay, let me step back. Okay, there's a lot of good things going on in my life. Absolutely. Beautiful. Well, if people want to learn more about the club, if they want to donate, because obviously, as you mentioned, you know, you do travel around the world and that that obviously takes your funding as well. Where are the best places for people to do that? This access is on the web at uh, Skid Row Running Club. Brilliant. And then you guys are on on social media as well. Yes, which I have never seen. (laughs) All right. Well, I know you're on Instagram because that's how I originally found you. So for people listening, well, Judge Mitchell, I just want to say thank you so much. I mean, to to speak to you full stop is incredible. But having watched the film and seeing what you've done, aside from your own personal journey through into the law profession, is absolutely incredible and, and inspiring. And your perspective is so unique and so valuable. So thank you so much for being so generous today. What, what I want to leave, you know, in, in, in light of what you just said, um, one of the takeaways that I hope people get from the movie, you know, I am not a great runner, okay? I've had people, much better runners, look at my form and say, oh, my God, you're doing this wrong. You're doing that wrong. Um, you know, I don't even think I have an inordinate amount of wisdom to impart. But you don't need those things to make a significant difference in your community. Okay, you simply need to make a commitment of yourself. And if you're not a runner, you know, but you like working with senior citizens, you know, go go to the local convalescent home. Befriend some of the people who are never visited by their family. You know, you like working with young people. Find your local elementary school or your local Y and see what kind of reading program you can volunteer at. You know, if all of us would say, okay, 20% of my free time, I'm going to spend 
doing something to benefit the larger community. You know, this country, this world would be radically different. Okay. <laughs> it, it, it humors me at times when people, oh, Judge Mitchell, you, you know, you, you're such a wonderful person. No, I'm not. Okay. I simply made a commitment of my time and energy, which most of us are able to do. You know, you ask me what movie I've seen or don't ask me what's going on with the Dodgers or the Lakers or what is on TV. I'm clueless because my free time is not spent focusing on those things. I remember Mike Royko, the columnist for the Chicago paper. You're familiar with him? Uh, No, sir. Okay. Well, he was a famous columnist uh, when I was growing up, I believe, for the Chicago Tribune. Um, and at the end of his life, he lamented the fact that he had not spent more time with his wife. And if he had to do it all over again, he wouldn't have watched as much sports. (laughs) That always stuck with me.